back to Mesoamerican Studies on Air, the podcast that brings you real, recent research on ancient Mesoamerica. I'm your host, Catherine Knuckles-Wild. Christopher Hernandez is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Loyola University, Chicago. His work in anthropological archaeology is fundamentally shaped by the issue of contemporary relevance. How does the past matter or not? This question stems from his upbringing in Chicago as the child of Guatemalan migrants who talked endlessly about their love for Guatemala and the importance of ancient Maya history. Searching for a sense of self in a country that treats all Latinx peoples as foreigners led him to study ancient pyramids as well as contemporary culture. Given the pride felt for the indigenous past, why are contemporary Maya peoples treated so poorly in Guatemala and other parts of Latin America? This formative experience shapes how and why he conducts research. Christopher Hernandez's current research is focused on issues of archaeological ethics, the application of community-based methods, relational philosophy, and understanding social conflict in long-term perspective. Through the application of aerial laser scanning, or LIDAR, documentary analysis, and traditional excavation methods, he investigates how the process of making war shaped landscapes at a regional level. This analysis entails collaborative research into martial tactics and the consolidation of archaeological remains to attract tourism. The reconstruction of ancient structures is conducted in service of the local indigenous community of Puerto Bello Metzaboc. First of all, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me a little bit about your work. I'm really excited to learn more about what you've been working on and what you have coming up. Um, and I know our listeners are going to be really interested in hearing it as well. Um, so why don't you why don't you start by giving us a little bit of an introduction into who you are and what you've been working on and, and what in particular you have coming down the pipeline? Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, it's great to uh, talk about my research and to talk with a fellow Mesoamericanist uh, about uh, all the great stuff that's going on down south of the U.S. border. Um, so me personally, um, uh, I am an assistant professor at Loyola University, Chicago, and I've been an archaeologist working in Chiapas, Mexico for uh, the better part of a de- well, more than a decade now. Um, and I work as part of the Mensapak Archaeological Project, which is a community archaeology program um, in the town of Puerto Bello, Metzaboc. And in town, we work with the local Lacandon Maya to uh, investigate uh, pre-Columbian, but also colonial history in the region. And, and also in terms of cultural heritage, we work together to make sure that the archaeology we do in the region um, benefits locals and that they have access to all the information and the technology that we're using. So I should pause here to mention that all the research that I'm going to present and talk about today isn't my own. It is done in collaboration, not only with fellow archaeologists such as Joe Polka, Josue Gomez-Vazquez, Josue Toledo, uh, and others, but it's also done with the local Lacandon and Saltalmana community that lives in Puerto Vallejo, um, and so my specific research is on warfare um, and thinking about how warfare, conflict, violence affects uh, people's lives in terms of inequality, but also relationships with landscape and um, all sorts of different factors. So I've focused a lot on one particular site called Sunun, which is a peninsula within uh, Lake Minsabak, uh, which is the name of the place where I work. Um, and looking there, I've studied a site that has multiple fortifications, uh, mountainous terrain, and looked at how the local inhabitants, the local Maya that lived there back during the uh, post-classic period, um, integrated both their environment and architecture 
to fortify their community, but how those fortifications in turn then shaped uh, people's everyday lives. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a, such a great perspective to come at this from. Um, and I think, would you mind telling us uh, a little bit more about the Lacandon Maya? I know that some listeners probably haven't heard about, about this, this group in particular, and I'd love to, to talk a little bit more about them. Sure. So the Lacandon Maya, um, I think right now, uh, aside from the Chorti, it's like the Chorti and Lacandon are, are two of the smallest Maya ethnic groups that currently uh, around. Um, and so as far as Lacandon go, there's maybe only a couple hundred speakers, maybe a thousand people who can speak the language. Um, but um, in the town of Puerto Vallejo, Metzavoc, uh, where I work, there's a long history of anthropologists and others coming in and studying them. And so the, the project that I work on, the, the one of the project founders, Joe Polka, has been a long time doing archaeological, ethno-historic, and ethnographic research to learn more about um, who the Lacanon are, where they came from. Um, and so a lot of what I'm going to talk about is based off of his research. Um, so the Lacandon Maya um, are, well, they speak Lacandon Maya, that's the name of their language. Um, and in this particular part of the world, in Chiapas, they're well known, but there's a lot of misconceptions about who they are. So the Lacandon, like if you go to Guatemala, are often boogeymen. They're kind of like these people who live out in the forest. You can use them to scare kids. Uh, it's the idea of like wild people that often uh, uh, structures how people in Mexico and Guatemala think about them. Uh, but in reality, um, the history of, of the Lacandon Maya is, is profoundly shaped by uh, colonialism and interactions with the Spanish and other people uh, who are coming into the rainforest of Chiapas, Mexico. So as Spanish colonization was creating all types of terrible, terrible living conditions for the indigenous peoples of Mesoamerica, a lot of them fled to the rainforest, the, the lowland uh, Maya rainforest, um, to find refuge and escape from uh, Spanish colonial overrule. And over time, a lot of these refugee Maya uh, linked up together, formed communities, and among them, Yucatec, a, Yuc a version of Yucatec Maya known as Lacandon became the dominant language. Uh, the men started to wear white robes, carry their hair long, uh, carry bows and arrows. And so a lot of Lacandon lifeways, like living out in dispersed settlement out in the rainforest, or at least what was thought of as traditional Lacandon lifeways, was shaped to sort of avoid contact with outsiders, or at least avoid unwanted contact. But they never were fully isolated. They would trade their tobacco and other goods uh, to obtain metal machetes. And so over time, uh, this group was studied by uh, founding figures in Maya archaeology, like uh, Alfred Tauser and others. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and so um, today, uh, they still hold on to many of what are considered quote-unquote traditional practices, although I say quote because like, one of the hallmarks uh, of the research in the Lacandon and what the Lacandon themselves will tell you is how their culture shifts over time and it's never been static. Uh, but sort of a lot of a lot of things that are thought of as traditional, like the, the styles of dress, ways of making up your hair, language, other things, you can still persist among these communities. Although now if you go into Mensa Bach, uh, you know, people are wearing jeans, they have trucks, they have satellite TV, mm -hmm. all these other different yeah, and 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 I think that's such an important point to emphasize is is this idea of continuity and like you said, uh, the Lacandon people themselves wouldn't consider their their culture to be stagnant, right? But rather, it's something that that's evolving with time as culture does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you go to Mensbach, uh, the they 
it's a it's a biosphere. So right now, Mensapac is an UNESCO biosphere. Uh, and so the Mexican government provides a lot of funds through their forestry agents, their uh, their uh, protected areas agencies uh, to do all types of projects in the region. And Lacandon are actually the underground stewards for this biosphere. They're the ones who are actually going out, making sure that plants are being protected, people aren't looting and doing other things. Um, and so in addition to doing that work, um, they open it up to tourism from outsiders and people do come. It's a little more remote. It's a little more rustic. And I think that's the type of uh, tourism narrative that, that they've structured for the moment. But mm -hmm. when you come in and if you visit, they'll tell you all about their culture, how things used to be, how they are now, the, the deities that uh, perhaps some worship in, that some people in town worship or not. Um, and they'll also tell you about their current day situation, like uh, how you know, they have struggles sometimes with uh, neighboring communities over fishing and other things like that. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, like I mentioned before, this narrative, it's not just me doing research. It's its me conveying uh, information and messages that I'm told and that many people in the community often tell me, you know, hey, share this with other people. Let them know uh, more about who we are and, and not just have like these other kinds of narratives, outsider narratives structuring who we are. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I um, before we dive into your research in particular, I, I would love to hear just a little bit more about this collaborative process. You know, this um, we, we've had a couple people on the podcast talk about collaborative research, um, but I'd love to hear about how the process works for you in this particular context with your collaborators. Sure. Um. So the, the guiding principles or the guiding uh, philosophy here is based on community archaeology uh, that was developed here in North America, uh, primarily among uh, Native Americans developing from NAGPRA and all that. But uh, a lot of the community archaeology that I do and where I am now um, was set up for me by project uh, co-founders Joe Palco and Fabiola Sanchez Valderas, who, who wanted to start the Mensabak archaeological project by doing it with the local Lacandon. So they, they, when they came in, they presented their ideas and asked permission to do the work and then committed to um, conducting field work with the local Maya to teach them uh, archaeological field methods to build capacity in, mm -hmm. in, that, in that sense, but also to leave the artifacts in the community, to not uh, take them out to Mexico City or the U.S., but that they would be housed for the Lacandon to steward and have if they if they wanted to look at. And there's actually a local community museum that was developed for this specific purpose. Um, and so I came into the situation early on in the project and building from this um, over time, I've, I've become more community-based. So my research on warfare and other factors are taking more into account uh, what locals want. So I started my dissertation project thinking about warfare and equality, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But mm -hmm. uh, I found a way to then use that avenue of study to then get funding to then reconstruct uh, fortifications in the region so that we can so that locals have archaeological materials that they can present to tourists, because as I'm sure you're probably aware of, and perhaps uh, a lot of your listeners are aware of, is like when you go out into the jungle, if an archaeological site hasn't been reconstructed, it doesn't look like much to the typical person, you know, it just looks like mm -hmm. a bunch of rocks. And yeah. so uh, this was the big thing. They're like, okay, you're doing all this research and that's cool, but we really, really want you to build something up so it looks like the site of Palenque or or looks like these sites that we know about so the tourists can actually see 
architecture and we can show them something besides just the jungle. Um, and so um, that's the type of partnerships we have, you know, seeking permission, asking uh, locals what they think, taking into account their wants, their, their needs and input that they provide. So even during field work, as we develop questions, if, if they say, you know, don't dig bones, we don't touch bones. So there's not a lot of bioarchaeological research that we do mm -hmm. in the field. If they say, you know, a particular research plan, like if you decided you want to dig these pits in this area in that way, that's just not going to work because, you know, they're very knowledgeable about the local landscape. And so it's very much a, a, a sort of a transculturation going on here where I come in as an outsider archaeologist with other, other outsider archaeologists working with locals and together we share and build uh, with one another um, uh, to create something um, together, something that wouldn't have been possible, just, you know, archaeologists and locals separated. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the the huge advantages to community archaeology, right? Is that is that you create something, maybe maybe something different than what was originally expected, but something that is uh, beneficial for both sides. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I love about community archaeology is the fluidity of it. I think a lot of colleagues perhaps are what scares them about it, because I, I think a lot of colleagues like to have a sense of control and then mm -hmm. I have a plan, right? I'm going to go out, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get my funding and that's how all the money's going to come in and and I'm going to get my publications. Whereas community archaeology says, yeah, you might have a plan, but you know, you have to cede control to other, other interested stakeholders, other interested parties and what comes up the other side, uh, you know, is a little uncertain, which I think is, is a beautiful part of doing community archaeology. I love the, the, the fluidity of it, but I can see why other colleagues might um, shy away and be nervous about a little bit of uncertainty. But, you know, I think, like you said, it makes for better research, stronger mm -hmm. research, because you have more voices, you have more opinions in sort of not only intellectually, but also um, pr practically, like actually doing research, making sure that it can be done in the field. Uh, and, you know, Locals have a lot of knowledge, both mm -hmm. philosophically, but also um, practically. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk about your research. You know, you, you mentioned that you study uh, post-classic and colonial warfare. Um, what, are you, what are you currently working on and what led you to these, to these questions? Yeah, so um, I've been working on uh, several different projects, but currently I have a special issue in the journal Ancient Mesoamerica that should hopefully be out by the end of this year. If not, then it'll be out by the beginning of next year. Um, and the the dominant focus in that issue and a, a dominant focus in a lot of my research is unpacking uh, warfare a little bit, because I think broadly speaking in the general public, but also among archaeologists, when you talk about warfare, there's often this expectation of combat, like somehow there's a one-to-one -one correlation between war and combat. And if they can't get a sense or a feel that like you're talking about combat somehow, um, then it's not warfare. But a lot of what I've done with colleagues like Justin Bracken um, is to think about how that narrative of war equals combat is super simplistic, even in the way when we talk about it in everyday life, it pops up. So like, War at a more fundamental level is a relationship. It's a relationship between social groups and it's a process that unfolds uh, in terms of uh, not only engaging physically in combat, but also preparing for it and administering outcomes. And so thinking about it in, in this sort of three process, we can see that warfare is affecting 
so many different things, uh, landscape, architecture, the way people move about uh, their homes, uh, all these different dynamics. And, and really the way I came to it was thinking about contemporary social issues. So thinking about what's going on in the world right now, um, you know, the military industrial complex, the increasing wealth gaps that we have in, in this country and understanding that um, as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, um, and as the climate changes, military and industry are a big part of the reason why we can't do the things we need to do to change uh, our consumption practices, to change, um, you know, who's in power um, and all these other different factors. And this isn't just something that we talk that uh, that works at a bureaucratic level, you know, in the Senate and, and with the president, but it affects our everyday lives, like our entire world, whether we understand it or not, is militarized in the way the highway system is set up, the way gates are set up in front of federal buildings. They don't perhaps look like fortifications, but they have them. And so thinking about the nuances of the way that our everyday lives are militarized and how this militarization helps to perpetuate and expand inequalities both in the U.S. and abroad led me to wonder about, could this be happening in the ancient world among the Maya and others, because we know that there were massive differences between the the kings and the elites and uh, commoners and even uh, captives, slaves and others in, in society. Um, and so that got me asking the question um, at this site of Sunun, because I thought it was a particularly good site to look at, because it was a peninsula, it was super rugged, it's just seemed like a giant fortress. And I thought to myself, there's no way that you build a community in a fortress, and then it's not somehow structuring different aspects of life, like mm -hmm. politics, economics, what have you. And so that's uh, what got me um, doing my dissertation at the site and asking those questions of how warfare uh, specifically martial practice, uh, how we make war, uh, leads to the uh, perpetuation of inequality across generations. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that, yeah, what you what you say makes a lot of sense about this, this idea of the site being a peninsula and, and sort of creating this, this ideal context to ask these questions. Um, does the site itself, I mean, what, what, what do you find at the cell at the site as far as fortifications and other, uh, visual or material evidence of warfare goes? Yeah. So there's actually a lot of different fortifications. And what I focused on the most were the walls. Uh, there might actually be, uh, bastions or like towers along the walls, but that mm. would require a little more excavation. So that's, that's a hypothesis I have based on surface reconnaissance. But, um, what I noticed in, when I focused on the Southern half of the peninsula, the, the big land bridge connecting it to, uh, the mainland is that, um, well, seasonally it's, it, it, it becomes an Island. So during the rainy season, it's completely surrounded by water and only during the dry season does the land bridge get, get exposed. Um, and as you try to walk into the site, because you are faced by these just massive ridges that are very steep, um, when you try to find the easy path in, I started to see walls across them. I went, okay, well, that's interesting. It looks like they blocked them off. But because I study warfare, I always have to think about like the alternative. Because whenever I say that uh, something's a fortification, I get a million other people that say, no, it's, it's a symbolic whatever, or mm -hmm. it's a road or this and that. So then, um, you know, I kept doing surface analysis and, and finding more walls across paths and up on ridges. Um, and so when we dug it up, um, yeah, it was definitely walls built um, across these passes. Uh, 
And looking at ethnohistoric data, it just matched up with um, descriptions by Hernan Cortez and others about what these fortified sites looked like. So in terms of the time period, post-classic, just before the Spanish show up, uh, and then reading their descriptions of sites, not perhaps this one specifically, but ones that are nearby, uh, wow, this is really close. Um, and so thinking about that and then modeling movement and thinking about where the easiest paths were into the site, yeah, the gentlest slopes to put walls like that matches up exactly with what we know from the Spaniards and others about what Maya tactics were like. So uh, when the Spanish and even Mesoamericans talking about warfare amongst themselves would mention how it was key for the Maya to block roadways, which should make sense to any to people who study military history, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to stop warriors, block the path, block the walkway. And so this site um, has that in addition to very mountainous, rugged terrain. So um, if I could show you a picture of it, I would say, take a piece of aluminum foil and just crumple it up. <laughs> that's what the <laughs> landscape looks like. And so wherever there's peaks, that's where you find habitation. That's where you find people's homes and dwellings, typically around the peaks. Um, and, and in various areas, you just can't move forward anymore because there's steep precipices. So not only do you have an island peninsula blocking off people getting in, you have the walls blocking off the easy land routes into the site. Um, you have possible towers up on high to be able to shoot down to the attackers. Uh, but like I mentioned, I have to do more research to make sure that these are actually towers. But the, the surface evidence looks pretty in indicative because it's all connected with the walls. Mm -hmm. um, and then beyond that, if you can get into the actual settlement, well, then you got to go up and down this very rugged terrain with all the homes up on the uh, on the peaks and, and going back to Cortez, he has this quote where he talks about a site where he goes into that's just like this. And the homes are up on high and they apparently have little loopholes or areas where they can shoot arrows down from their home. So it just fit. It fit not only in terms of what you'd expect um, cross-culturally in terms mm -hmm. of warfare, blocking passes, using rugged terrain, but it fit also with the uh, Spanish and indigenous uh, perspectives and narratives about Maya warfare in this region and at the time. Yeah, and I, I'm really curious about about the the layout that you've described. You've painted a really vivid picture of the 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 topography and the way that the people interacted with the world around them. Um, would how how much, if at all, did the rainy season affect? The warfare. I, I'm I'm just curious about the way that these structures seem to be responding to the environment. Right, an island that becomes a peninsula in the dry season, homes built up on peaks that are for defense. Were they also because of the climate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the the whole design or the way that the Maya made war, uh, because my big argument is that the Maya made war with the landscape. It wasn't just about the the fortifications and the weapons, but they they were fully aware of what was available, what was around them, and how to integrate it into um, an idea for making war, a plan for engaging attackers. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the water itself, um, the big expectation among Maya scholars is that um, attacks happen during the dry season, uh, because if uh, if you've ever been down to this part of Mesoamerica, to Chiapas, to the lowland jungles of uh, the rainforests of Guatemala, during the rainy season, the water goes up it, uh, and rivers become 
difficult to pass, if not impassable. Areas become mucky, so it becomes a, a very difficult terrain to navigate. And if you're trying to move warriors, then um, people would think that perhaps the rainy season isn't the best time. Although, in this case, we do have to take into account that this place is connected, Mensabak is connected to rivers that then connect to bigger rivers. And so maybe they were actually moving around during the rainy season, but that's another hypothesis that I'll, I'll be investigating in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they absolutely made war with the local environment, the topography, the ecology, the, the, the water being there was an integral part of not only uh, fending off uh, attackers on foot, but you know you need water to live, and I think also the meaningful aspects of water. The fact that you have this mountainous terrain. I should mention that the Mensbach region is a basin within a mountain range uh, and sort of foothills to the Maya uh, Guatemalan Maya Highlands, um, and but it's still very rugged within the basin or valley, if you, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have water uh, mountains in these watery areas. And when the water goes up, they basically look like, well, at least to me, look like water mountains. And you'll hear locals today talk about water mountains in the region and the places where water comes out of the mountain and, and, and how sacred a lot of places in the region are, like El Mirador, which is a sacred mountain, uh, not about a about a kilometer from from Zunun. and so yeah absolutely i would say that these features that the mountains the water uh, not only were they integrated into a plan for making warfare but they had uh, the the uh, the basic aspects of like places to live uh, water to drink but also the meaningful aspects as well i think that the meaningful aspects of mountains water um and landscape played an important role in terms of where people lived um, in the site. So what I argue in my paper for the special issue is that um, the, the elites in Sunun occupied the highest terrain, the highest peaks, uh, because I think they were not only selecting the most well-defended terrain, what was behind the most layers of defense, walls and water and high altitude, but also because the mountains were sacred in and of themselves. The peaks were important places for contacting and connecting with the forces, the other than human forces that existed in the cosmos. So I think it links up all these different aspects of, of, of Maya lifeways and culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I love the, the way that you have been able to describe the sort of interweaving of different evidence or lines of evidence that, that all point towards this. Um, so I'm curious how in, in this particular aspect of the project, how have you been able to benefit from the collaborative aspect of this? I know you mentioned the, the ethno-historical aspects of it. Um, in what other ways has this project benefited from the collaborative efforts? Oh, um, yeah, it wouldn't have been possible without it. I mean, uh, it, I, it, there's so many different capacities. I mean, one, just letting us do research, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can't work in these rural communities without locals, um, at least approving of it. Uh, many of our colleagues have unfortunately found out that yeah, if you don't have local permission, bad things happen. And so, you know, the, just making it possible to do this work um, is one thing. But beyond that, thinking about other factors of how they're actively contributing to the fieldwork, so clearly they're excavating, you know, they're excavating with me, they're mapping, but um, I'd like to think a little bit more about um, the intellectual component mm -hmm. in terms of outcomes of 
research and ideas and philosophy. Um, so when we work, when we do research, um, we talk a lot. And actually, this is my favorite part of excavation. I know this may be like, uh, I don't know, anathema or like uh, uh, crossing a line here for other archaeologists, but digging to me and Mapping has really taken a backseat. I kind of, I do it. I still kind of enjoy it, but that's not my favorite part of doing field work. My favorite mm -hmm. part is actually talking to locals while we're doing the excavations, learning about local culture, chit-chatting, gossiping, what have you. Um, and sometimes we can get into really deep discussions of not only culture, local culture, and what how their understandings of their own life, and but then also thinking about their archaeological records. So one example I could think of is while we were excavating a dwelling, a home, we were finding um, little bits and flakes of chert, and we were finding hammerstones that were used to flake off the pieces of chert um, to make stone tools. Um, and as we're finding them, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I have these ideas, and that would have been used like this. And because we're so open and honest, one of my colleagues who was working there with me said, oh, yeah, I know exactly how that's used because, you know, my dad used to do that. And this is, he would take the stone and do it this way. And actually that shirt, he probably went down and got it from the river because that's where we have a ton of different sources. And he started to tell me where they get their shirt from. And I went, oh my God, this is like a treasure trove of <laughs> archaeological information here, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a lot of different things like that. A lot of different conversations that we'll have thinking about um, the meaning of caves. So uh, what, what what the skeletal remains would have meant and then all sorts of different examples like that. Um, and also I should mention that another one of my collaborators, although he doesn't live in um, Mensa Bach, he's Seltal Maya, he lives in Chiapas. And uh, we, we have talked about, and a lot of the research that I've done in terms of thinking about landscape um, and relational philosophies, which is what I'm talking about with landscape, thinking about how uh, human landscape material relationships are interactive both mm -hmm. are playing an active role uh, talking to him about that a lot too as well and, and forming and shaping these ideas so we're working on a paper right now um, to think about uh, the data from Sunun um, and other parts of the Minsbach region to put them in a more indigenous epistemological framework to think about um, active landscapes and what I just mentioned uh, relational philosophies so uh, there's a lot of components. They're always pushing me, especially the locals are always pushing me and making sure that I know what the heck I'm talking about when I say mm. something. So if I say like, <laughs> when we found human teeth, they're like, oh, it's from a, from a baby and that this pot was here and it's placed for this reason. And they're always poking and prodding me like, how do you know what you know? So then I, that's the first test, right? If mm -hmm. locals think I'm onto something, then I, I feel more confident presenting it to uh, coll other colleagues. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I feel like that's, a, that's such an interesting perspective because I mean, you know, you say it and, and, and it makes perfect sense to me, but I know that the field hasn't always worked this way. Right. Um, and so it, it really, um, yeah, it, it just makes so much sense to think that the first line of um, approval, I guess, should come from the people who know the region instead of, um, you know, whatever we might think up in our minds. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, um, who would know better about their culture than the Maya, right? And you some, yeah, and for decades, decades, right, digging up sites and doing stuff. And some people have talked to them to their Maya colleagues. And it's not to say that, you know, mm -hmm. all archaeologists have never, never talked to the local Mayas, but I think. 
what community archaeologists nowadays are showing is it just wasn't enough. Too many voices were getting ignored. Mm -hmm. I think partly because of fears, uh, rightly or wrongly. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that as others, like you mentioned, other people in your podcast, I'm sure mentioned it, the more that we open it up to locals and hear their voices, it becomes richer, more vibrant, um, but also more meaningful because I think, you know, it has value now, a little more value or a different kind of value for people who live in the places where we work. Um, and I think that's, you know, to me, one of the more important things I like to publish, I got to make money, right? I got to have a job, <laughs> but I also want my research to have some kind of benefit or value for descendants and, and locals as well. Yeah, absolutely. So from this project, this this uh, this study that you're doing at Sunun, what would you say is the most exciting new conclusion that you're presenting here in this special issue? Yeah, I think... Um... Well, when the issue comes out, uh, I think a lot of people will gravitate towards perhaps uh, how we mentioned that a lot of research, there's been a lot of research on my warfare. You know, it's one of the most well-studied aspects of Maya culture uh, since at least the 1980s. Um, probably you could even go earlier, uh, mm -hmm. thanks to the work of David Webster in the 1970s, but it really picks up steam when people do hieroglyphic decipherments and we have a treasure trove of knowledge, but um, a lot of what happens with war warfare research is that um, the idea of war making gets lost. So warfare kind of becomes this variable that people talk about, oh, there was warfare and hence this happened, or these people were engaging warfare. And one of the big things that we ask in this journal is like, well, what does that mean? What does that actually look like in terms of an, an actual in, uh, embodied human process like what are people actually doing to make war um so when you say raid what does that mean when you say that a site is fortified how would that have worked practically and so mm -hmm. a lot of the authors are, are looking at that looking at murals looking at fortifications to think about actual human movements and actual human engagement uh with architecture with weapons with other things to think about uh the war making process to make it more embodied more human to to uh, uh take the words from ruth tringham to put a face on the maya warrior and mm -hmm. the maya person um and so in my research one of the things that i i looked at is how i mentioned that sunun is so sunun is so heavily fortified i thought about okay what is the strategy and the tactics here how was this actually meant to work in practice and so what I argue is that, that the Maya at Sunun created layers of fortification. They created uh, layers in terms of the water, in terms of the walls, in terms of the topography to slow and stall an attack. I and mean, this is in military terminology called defense in depth. And mm. so looking at that and how I mentioned earlier that um, elites are occupying the highest and most well-defended terrain. Well, what I argue is that uh, and it's probably is obvious, but I felt like it needed stating is that the elites are occupying the highest, most well-defended terrain because they're protecting their status as elites. Uh, so on the highest peak, we have the civic ceremonial heart of the community. Uh, so this is to me, uh, the smoking gun here showing how the process of making war not only affects landscape, but now is affecting how inequality is lived and experienced at the site that the elites mm. decided, okay, we're going to take the best terrain in terms of defense and live there and place our civic ceremonial group up there, whereas everyone else becomes more of a buffer for them. Right. Yeah. And, and this is something that, that we, 
I, you know, you, we, I feel like we have seen this or it's easy for some of us who, who have concepts of European warfare, right, to, mm -hmm. to draw an analogy with this. Do we have other examples of this in the Maya world? Yeah, I believe we do. Um, I believe that you can find other examples at other sites. Um, I'm just here. It would be taking other people's research and and providing my own analysis mm -hmm. because um, you do have people uh, like in the Petesh Batun region talking about killing alleys between walls. So when you have multiple walls uh, that are closely spaced together, trapping attackers and shooting them with arrows. You have other people talking about using mountainous terrain for defense, but uh, like, for example, the site of Sak Peten in the Peten Lakes region of Guatemala looks a lot like Sunun. And so what I mentioned at the end of my paper is that um, if we could take this type of analysis to look at uh, not just the fortifications and, and and say, oh, they were for war, or, or just to say that these are fortifications, but to think about how they would have worked in practice in terms of strategy and tactics, we might start to see the same thing out of the sites like Sak Peten, um, perhaps sites in Guatemala and the Patesh Batun region and others. So there are other, definitely other peninsular sites that have similar layouts where I think something similar is going on, but I would have to look more closely at the data because in, in my comparative research, I didn't see anyone else arguing about defense in depth, although mm -hmm. I'm, I have a hunch that they, they would agree. Perhaps, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe that's putting that's putting maybe too many words in my, the mouths of my colleagues. So <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier that you know you you did have to originally uh, defend this hypothesis that these were defenses versus just you know uh, ritual or ceremonial walls. Um, are there any other contradicting opinions to this conclusion, or have you had to uh, sort of defend your ideas from people who maybe had other thoughts about what it could all mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, archaeologists who study warfare, I feel like, always have to engage in academic intellectual warfare with their colleagues. <laughs> because whenever you say warfare, it's like people automatically are ready to, like, pincushion you. Even people who study warfare, I think, it's just a very contentious contentious topic for there are good reasons um and then there are others that are just kind of uh, um i think go a little too far where some people just still refuse to accept evidence of warfare um but yeah they're, they're i think one of the biggest ones is the idea that somehow it's an all or nothing like it either uh, it reminds me of sort of debates about intersectionality in which it, people try to partition things and, and create mutually exclusive categories. So, you know, one of the big debates was always, well, it's not a fortification because it's not pragmatic. It was symbolic. It's a symbolic wall delineating space. And so what I hope I've conveyed in terms of my research at Sununun is that warfare isn't mutually exclusive of all these other social processes. Um, and that so what's meaningful, what's symbolic, uh, perhaps religious, is often an important part of making war. You know, the places you pick to defend are often meaningful for reasons beyond just defense um, and tie into so many different factors. So that's often one of the biggest, biggest critiques I get. It's like, oh, no, it's not warfare. It's this. And I go, oh, actually, uh, it, why not both? And let's mm -hmm. think about, you know, what I've shown in terms of the, the fortifications. Um, 
And so, yeah, I always try to muster multiple lines of evidence and, and show how they converge on particular conclusions. Like I mentioned, the ethno history with comparative data from other sites, from the Petesh Batun, uh, with comparative data outside of the Maya area, all of them showing like the, the similar conclusion. But I still get people who say, oh, you know, no, it's not, it's not a fortification because it, it has gaps. And I go, okay, let's think about archaeological formation processes. Mm -hmm. And I've shown that in my dissertation, how a lot of the gaps in the walls at Tsunun are the result of people dismantling the walls uh, after the site was abandoned mm. um, and other different factors. So that's kind of one of the avenues of research that I'm pursuing now um, is thinking about formation processes and how uh, I think a lot of the critiques that archaeologists face can be addressed by thinking about how evidence of war uh, transforms over time. Uh, in terms of archaeological formation processes. So um, one of the big things is uh, when you look at Maya fortifications, people say that there's a preponderance. There's just so many different settlements throughout the lowland rainforests, the northern lowlands and other parts of the Maya area. And yet, when you compare that to the number of fortifications that are known, the proportion is very small. And part of what I'm arguing is that, at least in the lowland areas of Guatemala, Chiapas, Mexico, and other areas, uh, the Maya weren't really using stone walls, which is the primary indicator that archaeologists look for uh, mm -hmm. for fortification. Since they weren't really using them. Like the primary building material was wood, and you would only find stone walls in areas where the soils just weren't deep enough or couldn't support wooden posts. So there, there may be this massive bias there in terms of like people saying, look, you know, there's not really many walls. So clearly there's not all these issues with warfare and I'm and what I'm arguing here is that um no actually we're missing it because of the formation processes associated with how the Maya built the walls right so there's a lot of counter arguments I could go on but I, I'll leave it there <laughs> yeah we can start with those <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no well I think I you know I think this is such an interesting topic and um especially given this this the the very broad historical misconception right that the maya didn't engage in warfare and you know most people especially most people listening to this podcast i think know this by now right that that the idea of the maya as a peace loving stargazing people uh was was very much romanticizing right mm -hmm. um but i i i really enjoy seeing these uh yeah, these new studies coming up, it, illuminating the the ways in which war was just as commonplace as it is for any other society, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know that that's that's always the the interesting part in thinking about. Um, yeah, the Maya made war, like you said, and the, the whole stargazer um, narrative, peaceful stargazers. That's not so much a thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, but. Uh, also, the question of frequency is another one that um, oftentimes is a stumbling block. And I will admit that that in terms of thinking about the frequency of warfare, so how often, uh, how rampant, how intense it was over time is something I think us archaeologists struggle with. So what I am really good, I feel like what archaeologists are really good at doing is showing you evidence of war making, the war making process, like that they were thinking about it. That they were preparing for it, preparing for it, and at times, if we get lucky, show evidence of actual engagement, like at the site of Aguateca, where there's burning and destruction, mm -hmm. or the recent research that came out about um, uh, Naranjo and and this site that uh, Wakna, I believe, that was burned and destroyed. Um, but 
how frequent those types of massive event destruction events were, I think is still something that's very difficult. But at least we can show nowadays that that warfare was a pervasive aspect, at least in the Maya in the experience of uh, Maya peoples. Although combat itself may have been rare, that perhaps not many people experienced it. The effects of or the preparation for it, I think, were very widespread um, in the classic and the post-classic, and I think that's. That's that in and of itself, just like how I mentioned, like you and I may never really experience combat in our lives ever, mm -hmm. but the effects of militarization and that warfare are very profound in our everyday lives. And I think that's something that would have been true in the Maya past as well. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting, an interesting aspect to approach it from, because yeah, when you think about it that way, it is everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like the news, right? Well, uh -huh. I mean, the news cycles now are so crazy, but like, you know, when Ukraine happened and how much mm -hmm. that captured people's attention, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's it's visceral in a way. And clearly when we look at Maya art, um, at least with the elites of the art that they're creating, I think uh, perhaps there's similarities in terms of the emotional, the emotive, the embodied aspects of war and how mm -hmm. they presented that to people. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. definitely interesting. Mm -hmm. So you're involved in so many interesting topics, and I, I, I can tell that, you, that you're very passionate about all of them. What would you say that you love most about the work that you do from day to day? What I love the most? Oh, wow. Um, I think my favorite part of the research is to working with students, with colleagues, with indigenous descendants and others to think about how to create a more ethical, but also more rigorous archeological practice. Mm. Now, whether that's a science or not, I think is a question I leave open for debate uh, because as, just like I said, with community archeology, span the end point is not always clear. And I think uh, right now there are a lot of colleagues who are trying to rethink archeological practice to make it less Eurocentric to make it more equitable. And like I said, more multivocal, including different voices, people who aren't just trained in Western science, but have different perspectives. And so that's a big part of the conversations that we're having when I'm in the field and look, getting different perspectives on life, um, analysis, on field work, uh, on, on, on what have you. And so um, it's those type of conversations in class or in the field or with colleagues that, that I think excites me the most and thinking about the potential of creating archaeology that not only is insightful, perhaps fun, hopefully fun, uh, but also uh, works to undo a lot of the injustices and some of the inbuilt um, inequalities as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is something that's that's so exciting about what's happening in the field right now is, yeah, seeing these new changes that are bringing in new voices. And, and it's it's yeah, it's got to be so exciting to be to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I feel like if, if we as a field have done things correctly, that uh, if I'm still doing this in 20, 30 years, that I will no longer be someone who's expected to come up with a research design and go out and ex execute it and, and direct and manage everything. But, uh, you know, the National Science Foundation, these big granting agencies will be open to the fact that like, you're collaborating, you're going to develop a research design with locals and that mm -hmm. that will be more of a norm, right? Expecting that um, you're building something together as opposed to creating something right away and then going to go out and do it and 
locals may or may not factor into that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with, with me today. Um, I, as we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I think what I would say is definitely check out my special issue when it comes out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, In so ancient Mesoamerica, right? Ancient Mesoamerica. Uh, it's not out yet, um, but it should be out hopefully by the end of this year, if not definitely the beginning of next year. Um, there's also a chapter that was just released in the book After Dark in a book uh, edited by Nancy Gonlon, um, mm -hmm. uh, which looks at nightscapes and, and nightlife and darkness in urban Mesoamerica and the urban ancient world. Um, and I mention it because it's actually in there. Uh, you can see some of the collaborative uh, community-based research that I do uh, because it does include uh, insights from local collaborators telling us about how the moon works and how it ties into farming. Um, so it may, it's possible that uh, the moon actually affects uh, water intake in plants. And so planting during a, during a full moon may actually have beneficial effects. So to be on the lookout for that. It's, 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 it's out now. Um, but beyond that, no, I'd just like to say um, thank you for having me. Uh, this was a great conversation. Um, and if anybody out there uh, wants to talk about decolonization, community archaeology, warfare, uh, I'm always open to having these conversations, um, whether academically or just via email. So feel free to reach out. Absolutely. And thank you so much. And I look forward to hopefully having you back on one day in the future. Thank you. Yeah, this was great. If you're interested in learning more about Christopher Hernandez's work, please check out the webpage associated with today's episode, where you can find a transcript for this episode, as well as contact information for how to stay in touch with all of Chris's upcoming work. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you in the next episode.